0: Feel like continuing and saying, as I was saying, <laughs> since this is part two, <clears throat> or better known as the sun of dependent origination. <laughs> okay, let's just kind of recap for a minute or two from where we got to last night. <clears throat> I'm not going to go right back to the very start, but I want to just t- take the few links up to where we're going to start this evening to really again again investigate what's going on in this linkage of dependent origination. Proceeding steps, remember, the preceding dependencies before dependent on the six sense organs we have contact You just can't help having contact. Remember I was saying last night? We, you know, we are contacting things continuously. Consciousness is arising and passing away, um, which are associated with the six sense organs, including the mind, obviously, here. So we can't help but have contact. So we're coming into contact with things constantly. All the things we're having coming into contact with have that feeling tone, the one we spent you know, a day and a half investigating, Pleasant, unpleasant, neither. Pleasant, unpleasant, neither bodily. Pleasant, unpleasant, and neither of the mental world. So it's actually sukka and dukkha, asukha, and dukkha for all of these. There's slightly different words used for the mental, but it's basically the same. Contact leads to Vedana. Vedana leads, of course, to where we're going now, where I finished off on the cliffhanger last night on tanha, where we get to craving, desire. Many different ways of translating this. Um, craving is the most standard way of translating it. Desire is also another way that you can translate this. In many senses, a lot of the things I will have to say about this relate to some of the other talks that have been given over the past week in relationship to craving. This word tanha... It means literally, and I did say this to you before, an unquenchable thirst. By its very nature, it will find no terminal point. Desire is endless. Desire desires desire (laughs) in many ways. So it's an endless source of and proliferation of desire. Both the desire to have, accumulate, Um, just take those for the the moment, and the desire to avoid. Both of these elements are associated with desire. So when we hear craving or desire, then we're talking about um, avoidance and having. So it's again very much associated with the poles of Vedana. Like, I want, dislike, I don't want here. This thirst, by its very nature, as I say, is unquenchable. It just does not stop. I don't know how many of you perceive this in your life. This is really what the Buddha, I think, perceives as the pathos of the human condition. The real pathos in in human life. That we're kind of driven. We're sort of, I don't know, craving machines in many senses. You know, just productive of this desire of this craving constantly 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 wanting to have wanting to avoid wanting to have wanting to avoid of course there are other shades and other nuances in life as well as that but these if you actually begin to look just at ordinary life again i'm not talking about sitting on cushions or anywhere like that when we, just, when we begin to look at ordinary life we see the predominance of these facets or these modes of mind operating don't want, don't like, you know, don't want to have anything to do with. Oh, I like, I want. You know? Again, verbal keys, watch your language. <laughs> Literally, watch your language. You know? Sometimes we use it very sloppily, but even then we say, I really hate such and such. You know, obviously, slightly strong, but usually means I dislike, don't want, don't want to have. I really want, I would really like... You fill in your own gaps, by the way. <laughs> um, I really want, I really like indicators, of obviously, of that form of craving, which is the craving to acquire, in some senses. and it doesn't always have to be material stuff. It can be all sorts of things. Our lives are riven with craving. That is why the Buddha starts off with craving as being the first... Uh, basically the second of the ennobling truths. You know, desire, there is dukkha, and then there is a cause to dukkha, and the most identifiable, immediate cause is craving. The quotation that's pinned up on the board that was asked for me to put out there, the one I read out to you, the barb in the heart that makes people run in all directions and get get exhausted is craving. Yeah. You've only got to look at modern life to see craving in action. It's there and it's palpably obvious um, that it's there in our own lives and in the lives of others. As I say, it doesn't take a great amount of reflection or actual contemplation to see this very, very much in action. But of course, being Buddhism, there's a list. (laughs) Here's another list. There are three forms of craving, <laughs> ultimately. Um, the three forms of craving are what's called kama tanha. kama tanha. Well, we keep getting this one. It keeps coming up in various forms in the various different lists that I keep giving you. This is sensual desire, again. Kamma, lovely word, as in the word kamma sutra. Most people know this book. It's usually the salacious bits that are translated. The rest of it is really quite boring. (laughs) But the Kama Sutra, anything to do, it's, it's a sutra that deals with Kama, with desire, and the legitimate use of desire within Hindu society at a very ancient period in India. Kama, so it's a kind of dominant theme in Indian culture. Uh, The Buddha's picking up on it, and kama here is this, again, endless round of sensual desire and sensual pleasures that we can get hooked in, which I've spoken so much about. I really, really probably don't need to cover this yet again. I hope you've got the message, by the way, (laughs) about sensual desire and being hooked into sensual desire. You know, the craving arises in the mind, and it's like a hook that hooks us into it. And pulls us along until that craving is satisfied. Until we've got something to satisfy. There's very little worse than an unsatisfied craving. It just sits there. However, desire, like all things, arises and passes away. It arises and passes away. So what we're learning to do in this practice is unhook. Unhook from these desires unhook from whatever is arising in the mind but particularly when we're looking at craving and desire to see it for what it is the craving to avoid the craving to have and to unhook from it and watch it as a bystander watch it arise and watch it pass away it's beautiful not to be caught up in it just to watch it arising and watching it pass away riding the surf as i put it of your craving you can actually be like a surf rider you know ride up on the wave as it reaches its crescendo and comes down again because this is what craving does so surf your desires (laughs) rather than satisfy them (laughs) you know it's a very nice way of dealing with them just to watch them arise and watch them pass away it's rather beautiful actually to watch this. And you can watch this with all thoughts, but particularly here with craving. So Kamatanda, I really won't go into much about because it's so, so obvious. But that's what's going on um, in our ordinary life is this craving for sensual pleasure. As I kept emphasising to you over the week so far, our Western societies provide us with all sorts of things. Again, when I was teaching in the States last week, it was really very, very amusing the week before. Um, it was very, very amusing because somebody had the latest sort of iPad <laughs> and everybody was <laughs> <laughs> like this gathered round looking at this thing. <laughs> you know, it was it was absolutely a beautiful scene of, of sensual desire. <laughs> <laughs> which I did point out to everybody at that time <laughs> and equally you can see this anywhere you go you know with the latest gadgets and the latest things just how hooked into wanting them we get you know it's the latest craving and and of course our appetites are being stimulated continuously this is what's happening this is this is what advertising and all the things that we're so familiar with but think we avoid and think don't have actually any effect on us, but do. They stimulate the appetite, just as the smell of food will stimulate stimulate your ordinary appetite. So our appetites are kind of fairly endless. That's the whole point about this sensual craving. Then there is something called Balvatanha. Balvatanha is the craving to be and this can take many forms, but the most obvious one is like the craving to be forever. Yeah? I want to. This is me on a good day, really. <laughs> I want to be me forever. Yeah? And that can be there in some metaphysical desires as well. The metaphysical desire to be something like an immortal soul, which, of course, is the very thing the Buddha is denying is that there is any such thing as this kind of inseparable spirit, essence, soul or anything related to us. We are a process. Remember what I kept saying when we talked about the constitution of who am I or what am I? The constitution of us is really just a whole set of interconnected processes without any essential element running through them. And if you remember, I said this was partly the good news, because if there was an, if there was an essential element, and that essential element was, say, let's just take a, a morbid version of it, if that essential element was bad, there's nothing you can do about it. That's you. You're thoroughly bad. You know, forever. <laughs> you, know, you can't do anything about it. Um, the whole point about being a process is a process can be changed. The whole essence of the Buddha's teaching is about obviously affecting change. Change for the good, change for the wholesome. Movements away from the unwholesome, dominant states of mind, such as the craving for sensual sensual pleasures. To make the move towards much more wholesome uses of our desire, if you like. So, if we were an essential being, if there was something essential to us, then it would be absolutely impossible to change. Absolutely impossible to change. It would be causeless, you know, essential to you. And that's exactly what the Buddha is always denying, that there is anything within you that lacks causes. Everything is caused, you know? Everything is causal. The whole universe, in fact, there's another version of dependent origination I haven't even spoken to you about, which is what I call the generalized version. The version I'm speaking to you about is very much about human psychology and human becoming. But the other general version, the Buddha says, this happens, that happens. This ceases to happen, that ceases to happen. That is the general rule of dependent origination. Everything is dependent and codependent you know, in our universe, in our world. So when we're speaking about, you know, any essential reality, there is no essential reality. There is nothing, if you like, hidden deep within the cake. You know, we can look and we can search, but you won't find anything. And this is part of the investigation. This is very, very much part of the investigation. Now perhaps I'll just allude to this again part of my own training from, from years and years ago when we were looking at, we were doing basically exercises for quite a long time. It was about six to eight weeks of looking for the self. This was the exercise, looking for the self. And I was fortunate enough at that time to be studying with one of the Dalai Lama's um, tutors. And he got us to do these exercises day in, day out, such as, is yourself your big toe? Is yourself a hair follicle? Is yourself your liver? Is yourself your brain? Is yourself this? Is yourself that? And it was day in, day out. You think you're having a hard time? <laughs> this was really tough, and I was very, very young. I think I was only about 19 at the time, and I kind of lost it. <laughs> I really lost it at one point. and said, "Why are we doing this?" <laughs> this is driving me crazy. <laughs> doing this and he said he sort of paused, looked at me rather curiously and said, well you know what it's like you know when you've lost your purse lost your purse, what do you mean? (laughs) you know, when you've lost your purse, he said, what do you do? what do you do? (laughs) he said, well don't you look in every possible place it might be until you've convinced yourself you've lost it he said, well, this is what you're doing, looking every possible place to find out that you haven't got an essential self in the end. You know, so, you know, this is kind of very typical Tibetan pragmatics. You actually just keep on looking until you convince yourself it's not there at all in any solid sense. Um, so there's nothing essential. There's nothing essential with us. There's nothing essentially which is even craving. Craving is just part of the system, if you like. So when I want to be me, I actually actually I've got a false idea of who I am already. When I want to be me forever, as if there's some essential part that could carry on. In particular, in the kind of some metaphysical of post mortem survival, you know, where we're going to live after death in some way. Um, Even if one takes the Buddhist notion of rebirth, um, the traditional notion of rebirth, it ain't you that's going to be reborn. Let's get this very, very clear. It's not going to be you that's reborn. It's something dependent on you, but it's not you. It's a set of causes and conditions which carry over. This set of causes and conditions happen to be labelled John. Um, When this set of causes and conditions gives rise to a cockroach in the South American jungle, (laughs) I'm glad it's not me. (laughs) (laughs) it's something completely different but it's dependent on me i mean i'm joking a lot about this but it's something that's going to be dependent on me and we might want to examine that one i don't know i'll leave it you know we're going to have a sort of big question and answer session on the final uh, you know in the final morning so this this is usually one that comes up so please ask me about it when it when we get there But coming back to this, so this is wanting to be me forever. Well, of course, there are much more nuanced versions of this as well. There's ways of trying to, in some sense, ensure your continuance. Isn't there? There's lots and lots of ways we can ensure our continuance. Children, one of them. That's another way we can ensure our continuance. We live on through our children. That's often why people are so desperately attached to their children. We live on in some ways through our children, um, through their lives. Um, parents often can live very vicariously you know, through the lives of their children because they're somehow still related to me here. I'm giving you the jaundiced version here, by the way. Um, but... There are also other ways of living on. In some ways, we can, you know, many, many universities. For example, you'll go around universities throughout the world, and you'll find chairs endowed by various people whose names are attached to them. You know, and I've got lots of them at Oxford University with the names going back to the nineteenth century. So everybody knows who ex, you know, the Bowden Professor of Sanskrit, because Henry Bowdoin was the person who gave the money for this. Chair of Sanskrit back in the early 19th century. Um, as some, somebody I know, Richard Gombrich actually said to me, he said, "The whole chair was set up to translate the Bible into Sanskrit." <laughs> and the re- he said, "I'm glad I never had to do any of it in my time." <laughs> but you know, this is another way of living on. We can live on through our good works, through our good deeds. You know, with trying to make a name for ourselves. Um, so there are multifarious ways that we can live on it even comes down to the inscription on your tombstone if you have one you know, another way of helping to preserve your memory um, again another funny digression here was one tombstone that really struck me when I was country walking in England it was a, a village um, in somewhere in Worcestershire which is not too far from where I live and it had these two graves side by side And the inscription on one grave read like this. It said, Here lies an honest and sober woman all her life, chaste and pure, unlike the woman in the next grave. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, talk about post-mortem revenge. (laughs) That is an actual case. (laughs) So you can, uh, in some ways... I can't, I can't actually remember the woman's name, but you can sort of immortalize yourself in some form or another um, in many, many ways. And this is you wanting to be somehow in continued existence, even having people remember you, yeah. having people remember you. So that's on a good day. What happens on a bad day? Well, that's the next of the cravings, so if there's a craving to be, there's vibhava tanha, which is the craving not to be as well. Interestingly, the first two, in many senses, um, for those of you who are familiar with Freud, really correspond in some ways to the libidinal or the erotic drive in Freud. You know, the craving to be. Sensual desire as being an expression of libido. The craving not to be is Thanatos. The death drive, the drive for non-existence, to obliterate oneself, to literally you know, eradicate oneself. Now, I'm being serious here. Now, I'm not going to joke about this at all because this is very, very fundamental and very serious because the death drive can give, obviously, rise to the manifest- manifestation of suicidal tendencies here, yeah. the craving not to be the craving to destroy oneself in some way. But it doesn't have to manifest as that, because actually, for example, these can be intermixed, because the craving for sensual pleasure can be intermixed with the craving not to be, such as if you take drink or drugs in excess, the craving not to be, the craving to be obliterated in some sense, to literally not be present at all. So there's many, many ways of obliterating ourselves. We can obliterate ourselves by constantly over-sensory stimulation as well. Being pulled, say, into cinema. Just constant watching of images here. Because it stops us thinking about ourselves. Stops us being uh, involved in ourselves. So it can take many, many manifestations, this craving not to be. So we have these three forms of craving. And they're actually... All intermixed. They're all intermixed. They're arising, passing away, uh, but they're not just, you know, there's no, we don't just have one or the other. We probably have all of these in some form or another in a day. Yeah. When we talk about craving for sensual desire, for, you know, for sensual pleasures and the craving to be, actually the craving to be is also um, associated with endless novelty. The search for endless new stimulations and new forms of stimulation to make me feel I am in some form or another. The craving not to be, actually psychologically in Buddhist thought, is associated not just with this suicidal attempt to destroy oneself, but also with aggression, self-harm. All these forms where we actually, where aggression becomes an expression of self-harm and self-hatred as well. So these are very, very serious. And these are the three forms of craving that we see enacted day to day. You know, we have our good moments and we want to hang on to them. You know, this is craving to be, often with sensual pleasure. Then we have those depressive moments where I don't really want to be. It's so difficult. Life is very, very difficult. And I'm not talking about anything like clinical depression or anything, I'm just talking about those dull moments in the day when you feel, mm, like that. You just kind of drop down into a sort of dull pit and it feels just so difficult to carry on. But you do. You pick yourself up and there's another craving to be because there's lunch coming up. LAUGHTER <laughs> <laughs> or followed by soup. <laughs> you know? So, no matter what, we pick ourselves up, but we are going through in a sort of fairly cyclical manner through these things in a day. Now, to compound the problem, there's the next term that arises. Dependent on craving arises what's called upadana. Upadana is Attachment grasping. So, this arises in direct dependence on what is preceded, on tanha. upadana I'm just going to spend a few minutes just exploring this word with you, because it's a very, very interesting word. When you go back into the history of Indian thought, and you can see how the Buddha is using it, and why he's using it, he uses it in a very, very particular fashion. Now, I don't think I've used it personally myself, actually, over this week. I might have done. I I just can't remember. But often greed, aversion, and delusion are referred to as the three fires. In one particular very, very famous uh, small sutta or sermon, dispensation, the Buddha gives, he says everything is burning. The whole world is burning. The world, the eye is burning, the ear is burning, the nose is burning, the tongue is burning, all with the three fires of greed, aversion, and delusion. Yeah. So the whole world is in conflagration. It's actually being consumed by greed, aversion, and delusion. You know, that's a very powerful statement, isn't it? Very. He uses the metaphor of fire a lot. Here within his teaching. There's a good reason for it, and this is the historical reason. Brahmins, who were the kind of top dogs in Indian society in ancient India, uh, these were the kind of the priestly, scholarly class of Indian society, and the religion of those days really wasn't Hinduism. It was Brahmanism, the religion of this particular social elite within Indian society. Now, in their temples... In Brahmin temples, these days they've pared it down usually to one, sometimes very traditional temples in South India, you'll still find three fires burning. These are not allowed to go out. The sacrificial fire is meant to be constantly stoked with fuel, constantly kept fed with fuel, more wood being put on the fire. These fires are used for the sacrifices, in very ancient India used to be animal sacrifice, By the time of the Buddha, it was mainly things like coconut oil, ghee, which is clarified butter, sesame seed, valuable things within their society. These were sacrifices, offerings to the gods, and they believed that the whole universe was kept going by these sacrifices. These sacrifices, by the way, were known as doing your karma. This is what was known as doing your karma, and you either did it well or you did it badly. Uh, these were sanskaras, they were ritual actions. Notice another word that we've used as well, sankara. When you put fuel on your fire, you were engaging in upadana. You were fueling the flames. And what the Buddha is doing is turning this into a wonderful metaphor. If you want to keep your three fires of greed, aversion and delusion going then keep stoking them keep feeding them you, know, you keep placing fuel on the fire and that way the way that the Buddha is saying is craving and attachment is what keeps the fires burning we just keep on feeding it just keep on feeding the fires all the time. This is the reason why we engage in this business of looking at what's going on in the mind, seeing whether we're actually feeding it, seeing how closely so we can detach, unhook from these things so that we don't constantly keep on feeding the fires. So the fires are being fed by ourselves. This is what's keeping sangsara going. This is what's keeping dukkha going is this attachment, this grasping. Now, a number of examples are used in the texts of attachment, what attachment is. Um, and often they're to do with, there's one particular one in the Sangyotinakaya, which is called the, uh, the parable of the greedy and foolish monkey. Because this greedy monkey goes into, these, all the other monkeys tell him, you shouldn't go into this area because it's riddled with hunters. And what the hunters do to catch monkeys in this area is they put down tar on the forest floor. But unfortunately, the, the, the foolish and greedy monkey doesn't listen to his other fellow monkeys and he goes wandering off into this particular area. And guess what happens? He puts a paw into a, lump, uh, into a kind of circle of tar placed on the thing. He puts a paw in. He's got one paw stuck. What does he do? To try and get this paw out, he puts his foot in. Now two limbs are stuck. Then he puts his other paw in to try and get it out. Still no good. Puts his final back foot in to pull it out. Now he's got all four things. Eventually he gets his head stuck as well. This is kind of the stickiness of greed. This is the stickiness that captures us. I won't tell you what happens to the monkey. It's not very pleasant. Yeah. But this is the stickiness of greed. It says within the text all the monkey has to do to get himself out of this predicament when he, when he initially puts his paw into the tar is to grasp something firm to pull himself out with. In other words, a branch or something like that, to pull himself out. Now this is the branch of the dharma. This is the dharma. This is what you pull yourself out. This is the way that you extricate yourself from the stickiness of greed and attachment. Here, By pulling yourself out, by reminding yourself, reflection is always very, very useful um, on, if you like, the downside of this greed and attachment, this craving and attachment, that we're actually caught within. There is another way of catching monkeys, it's still actually used this day, in India and in Africa as well, which is to bury something like a bowl, something like this, except it's got a long neck on it, a thin neck. It's buried in the ground and what's put into it is a piece of fruit. And the monkey comes along and senses there's something in it and it puts its paw down into it, grabs hold of the piece of fruit, now it's stuck. All it's got to do is let go, but it doesn't. It just holds on and the hunters come along and capture it. This is the way. Now, this is a wonderful metaphor for the human condition. We're so, so trapped by that which we won't let go of. All you've got to do, like the monkey has, you've got to release your grasp and let go. Let go of all of those things that hold you in entrapment. Now you're all going, easier said than done, aren't you? (laughs) Well, actually, the exercises we're engaging in, in a way, throughout the week are an engagement with letting go, creating the conditions for letting go, of looking at particular states of mind, looking at the hindrances, for example, as we've been doing all day today, looking at those and seeing them and bringing ourselves back. Already we're at a distance from them. Already, by just watching them, we're at a distance. We have just taken that little step back. The hook is no longer drawing us in. We have detached that hook a little from it. So we can actually look quite detachedly. Oh, gosh, yes, there goes central craving again. There goes ill will. I'm joking about this slightly, but you can see this is what we're doing. We're just taking this little step back. We're no longer absolutely caught up in it. When we find ourselves caught up in it, What does the mind in mindfulness do? It unhooks and looks and goes, Oh, yes, sensual desire, ill will, restlessness and remorse, or whatever it might be. That's arising. So, this is, if you like, an exercise in detaching ourselves, unhooking us from all of those things that pass from our mind pass through our mind which normally kind of off you go off you go with it taken into it so attachment is that which is actually really stoking our fires now the opposite of this um, is of course the opposite of samsara is nirvana or nirvana ring i use the sanskrit version because it's more familiarly known in the west Nirvana or nirvanaring, this word is a very simple, intransitive verb in Pali and Sanskrit. It doesn't pass from a subject to an object, it's an intransitive verb. It actually means gone out. This is what the word nirvana literally means, it means gone out. What do you think it's referring to? The fires, that's exactly right. So nirvana is a picture of the fires having gone out. If you don't stoke your fires they will burn down and they'll burn down and they'll burn down and there'll be embers and eventually the embers will die out. That is the cessation of sangsara. When any fuel, any remaining fuel which will keep fueling sangsara has literally died out, it's gone out altogether. Now, of course, I think nature abhors a vacuum, as they always say. So instead of greed, aversion, and delusion, we get the arising of the complete opposites. In the nirvana experience, as far as we can understand it from the text, in the nirvana experience, there isn't simply an absence, there's the presence of the complete opposites. So instead of greed, there is generosity. Instead of aversion, there is friendliness and compassion. And instead of delusion, there is understanding. Understanding of the way things are. So attachment, detachment. Partly here. I personally don't like the word detachment, although I've used it here, because actually that doesn't really, really cover what's meant in Buddhism. You know, detachment can feel a bit like, oh, I'm detached. I'm sitting on the sidelines. Yeah? I'm sitting on the sidelines watching life, watching all the other poor fools doing what they're doing. Uh, and it's not that it's not kind of superior position that we occupy in many ways although it sounds an oxymoron in in english um, the opposite of attachment is not detachment but correct engagement with things so rather than moving away outside of life james joyce actually refers to one of his characters as being an outcast from life's feast you know, sitting on the edge, always on the periphery, never actually involved. Well, that's the opposite of the Buddhist stance. The, the the stance within Buddhist practice, and particularly within lay practice, is to be within the heart of life, but with a correct engagement, not with this sort of deformed engagement that we have, which is through the craving and the attachment that we have. And even when I say craving and attachment, bear in mind, of course, craving and attachment applies to those things you dislike. Those things you don't want to have. I'm really deeply attached to those, too. All those things you just won't let go of. There's a wonderfully um, humorous story in the traditions which runs like this. There's two monks who come to a river crossing, which is in flood at the time. And there's also a lady waiting by the river. And she's saying, I don't know how to cross because I can't cross. It's too deep for me. And um, the monks sort of look at this river. They contemplate it for a second or two. And one of the monks says to the woman, he says, okay, it's fine, hop on my back. And so he carries her across to the other side. This is completely against the monastic vows, by the way. You know, touching a woman, and carrying a woman, or anything of that sort, having any contact in physical contact in any way with a woman is against the monastic vows. And they get to the other side, and he drops her on the ground, and she goes off. And the other monk says to the one who carried the lady across, he said, how could you do that? How, how could you break your vows in that way? And he said, oh, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. And they walk on and this other monk said, I just don't believe you did that. I just really can't understand why you did that. Another couple of miles, he's still going on. This is unbelievable. You know, you can actually be kicked out of the order for this. You know, this, this, is, a, this is an offence. How could you do this? And the other monk turns to him and said, look, I left that woman on the other side of the river. You're still carrying her. So attachment is about what we carry with us. We carry all our likes and our dislikes with us. We don't let them go. We don't relinquish them easily. They're often very, very, very deep, these likes and dislikes which we carry with us. And think about all of the things like the grudges and the enmities that we often carry through life. In the Dhammapada, the Buddha says... With the thought of death, how can anybody hold enmity? Knowing that you will die, how can anyone hold enmity? It's very sobering, isn't it? When you think of the pettiness that we can descend into and hold on to so easily, um, yet the person who you're holding the enmity towards will die. You who are holding the enmity will also die. That's the sheer, plain fact of it here. And the Buddha is just really just pointing it out. How can you do this, knowing that the thought of death is there? So attachments, deeply, deeply embedded in us. So what we perhaps are being encouraged to do within the practice, and the way this is part of the training, what we've been engaging in this week, is learning to let go, learning not to be caught up with what is passing through our minds. Now, we've concentrated on the negative dimensions of the mind for so much of the week for obvious reasons because this is a problem. This is the problem. You know? Tomorrow, we're going to be looking at some more positive factors of the mind and, and looking at those and see if we can identify those in our minds because those are to be developed. Those are the things that we incline the mind towards. inclining the mind towards one in other words helps us to detach I'm going to use that word again although I'm not that fond of it to detach from the sticky attachments the little tar patch that we've stepped into that we can't actually get ourselves out of now this is in a sense again the dharma the dharma is that which carries us through this is why the teaching is important why hearing Reading, studying to a degree is important because it helps to give us the framework for that strong branch to know that we don't have to be stuck in this, you know, pool of tar. By putting and, and put another hand in and get even more stuck um, in trying to extricate ourselves from it, we have all of the wrong ways of trying to get ourselves out of. You know, we often think, you know, if, okay, if a little bit of pleasure isn't making me feel happy perhaps a lot more will (laughs) if one drink isn't getting me merry I'll drink a couple of gallons of it (laughs) and I'm kind of again over-egging it a little bit just to make a point of course this is often the unskillful ways that we handle our attachments and our cravings if a little is good a lot must be even better yeah, and what we're doing is more and more admiring ourselves in this swamp, basically. I'm mixing metaphors furiously here, but mm-hmm. <laughs> never mind. <laughs> yeah, so we're admiring ourselves in this swamp of craving and attachment and finding it very, very difficult. So actually, the only thing you can look to to get us out of this stickiness, this, you know, this stuckness, and actually, I don't know if any, any of you ever feel this in your lives. Do you often feel stuck? Yeah? There's a kind of stickiness to often where we are. And this is what we're doing. We're now trying to find something which is firm and solid that we can pull ourselves out of this stuckness, out of this kind of immobility that we've created for ourselves. Now, immobility, of course, then gives rise to yet further confusion. I, I literally don't know what to do now. I've tried all the options, and none of them make me happy. Yeah? What do I do? Where do I go? Yeah. So the Buddha is recommending that we, of course, look to something as firm and as solid. You can't have much, anything much firmer and solid than the Dharma heard as the way things really are. Yeah? That's, you know, and the teaching is the teaching about the way things really are so this is what we're doing we're trying to see things the way they are that is the thing that extricates ourselves you know, take that little saying that I gave you know, with the thought of death how can you have enmity you could be stuck in enmity you could be attached to feeling this venomous anger towards somebody you know, for past ills real or supposedly done to you you could be stuck in that yet here's your bit of dharma Death is an actuality. There's your bit of realism that creeps in. Yeah. That, hopefully, helps to pull you out of that enmity, out of that holding on here. So that's the way we're extricating ourselves, in this sense. However, if we trundle along in samsara, if we trundle along in the normal ways, then, of course there are further links in the chain um, to be gone into. Dependent on upadana, dependent on attachment and grasping, and actually one of the other meanings, by the way, I didn't actually refer to you, is another meaning of upadana, is you know when you see fire, again, fire, when you see fire, when you see it around, a, say, a fire stick of some sort, you sort of see the flames attached almost flickering round the piece of wood, almost as if it's clinging. It's literally clinging to the piece of wood. That is another meaning of it, another meaning of this term upadana. So dependent on upadana arises bhava, becoming. I want to become something. Now, that could be all the stuff I've talked about, fame, glory, professions, careers, All of the sorts of things that are very obvious here. But it can be just satisfying a desire. I want to become the person who satisfies that desire. I have this craving for something. I'm attached to it. And now I want to go out and get it. And here is the manipulation, this becoming. I'm always in the process of becoming, by the way. Hardly ever being. I'm always becoming something becoming my desires becoming the uh, manifestation of those desires we see this in in body literally in body people become the manifestation of who what and what they think it becomes written very very large in their physical features, their physical demeanour so much so that we often recognise it very clearly have you noticed how a lot of academics walk (laughs) with the head jutting out in front You know, sort of kind all head. You know, the becoming something, becoming something. We're always engaged in it. However, dependent on becoming arises birth. Now, you can take this literally, and this is what the tradition often does. But the abhidhamma and the abhidhamma is taken in a psychological sense. Is birth is the actual moment when you get what you wanted to become. Yeah get what you wanted to become the becoming process is a process of trying to manipulate the situation so you get what you want in life you might be your perfect career it might be your perfect profession that you want to do it might be even just getting if you are sort of an addict of some sort it might be getting your addictive substance it might be getting that however of course and this is in the kind of conclusion to the story this is, in a way, not quite who did it. <laughs> but the conclusion to the story is dependent on birth arises old age and death. So I can find myself in a situation, my favoured situation, I've really worked and struggled hard either for your life to get to or even just in the moment-to-moment situation where I want to satisfy my craving and I want to be it and I've got it, you know, This is the kind, just just use an image, an alcoholic who wants to get down to the pub. He's got to the pub, he's got his drink. Well, old age and death is closing time. (laughs) You know, when it closes. When they have to kind of sober up yet again. Now, it's it's a particular image. But what it means is, of course, is anything you get, anything you get, is subject to dissolution and disappearance. Yeah? anything we get. So the profession, the career, whatever. I think I suggested to you one other night that, of course, even if you get that favoured thing, there's retirement and then there's death. Yeah? So it's not about not doing those things, it's not being attached to them it's not about not doing stuff because obviously we all have to do things and the doing comes with responsibilities and all that is very important but it's the attachment the sense of building identity through attachment to these things the sense of trying to satisfy craving the craving will be satisfied but then it will just return again and you're back into the cycle once more and this will just go on. This is why it is a circle. I think Sangsara is depicted as the ultimate vicious circle. However, and this is the however, if we sever one of the links in the chain, in the chain of dependencies, the whole edifice drops apart. If we actually begin to sever any of the links. Now, traditionally, and I think just practically, the most obvious place to sever sangsara, or keep on severing it, the sangsaric circle, is at the point, of, of the point between Vedana and craving. Yeah? Hence the reason why we spent such a long time looking at Vedana. Because Vedana is the most obvious place because Vedana is just simply Vedana. It's pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. You know, and most of that we just can't help. You know, a lot of it might be hardwired, a lot of it is conditioned, so it will change, but we just can't help it. You know, the way I react to something when I initially see it, You know, when I see that pool of excrement or something like that, and I go, ugh, like that, I can't help that. What I can help is overreacting and keep on reinforcing it and doing all the sorts of things we can, craving to avoid it. And I don't want anything to do that. Don't go to India, by the way, if you don't like that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah. um, and being attached to that and wanting to avoid it all the time. Yeah. So this is the place where we start to break the chain. And this is what in Vipassana, in some parts, and particularly some particular Vipassana practices, this is what you're doing. Constant examination, examining that relationship between craving, and the Vedana which underlies it. If you're further round, then it's unhooking. It's the attachment. Keep on detaching yourself. Keep on looking. Keep on attending. Paying attention to. Hopefully, perhaps, ultimately being mindful. Now, I've just made a distinction there. And I'm going to make, I'm going to pick this up tomorrow night, and talk about this, and I'm going to talk about the Brahma Viharas. So hopefully it's not going to be a marathon session, but um, I want to talk about those two things. The primary one is very important, because you know I could actually have a title right here, right now for this particular talk, which is mindful, question mark, or simply paying attention. Because they're two different things. Mindfulness is one thing, paying attention is another. And again, I'll tell you all about that tomorrow. (laughs) Okay. Um, I'll finish there and open it again, as I've done every evening so far, to comments and queries and questions that people have. Ignorance as being the first cause. You know, ignorance as being the first thing. There, really, it's just saying if if you take if you take actually, I really haven't mentioned this. This guide, you ask the question, but if you take this as being actually what's going on in every moment, not as the traditions have it within three lifetimes. You know, here's the past, sankara as ignorance, avidya, and the sankharas, the formations then all of the links up to 10 being the present, 11 and 12 being the future. Oh, you know, Birth, old age and death. Now if we take that all as occurring in one moment, this is what's carrying over. Old age and death really, literally gives rise to as being in the same place with the same old ignorance. Yeah, just think of that happening moment to moment to Moment. What we're doing is we're just, you know, as I said, we're the kind of ultimate uh, organic cycling machines. We're recycling the same stuff over and over again. You know, we're just doing it again and again and again. So there's, in a way, there's no, if, actually if this is occurring, and it's not as fixed as this, but if that is occurring, there's very little learning going on. As we go through it. We're just carrying the same old stuff over into the next moment, which then becomes the next moment, which becomes the next moment. Yeah. Until we start to... And again, I would actually, not jokingly, actually, I'd really seriously, if you haven't seen it or have seen it, I'd watch Groundhog Day again. Because in a way, this is all about that. Kind of learning. He's a very slow learner, if you've ever seen the film. In it, He's a very, very slow learner here. Keeps on making the same old mistake again and again and again and again and gradually 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 starts to liberate himself from this day that keeps reoccurring. That's what we're doing. We're living Groundhog Day. Every day. (laughs) You know, in Sangsara. Just recycling it um, here until actually it dawns on us perhaps sometimes to not follow the link between Vedana and craving. Or to unhook ourselves from the attachments which are arising you know the things that we normally get attached to such as you know the the um, sensual desire and the ill will and the things we've been examining today to start to unhook from those so really that's what it's saying. This is a complete circle in the sense that it's not there's a, a direct link in some sense between old age and death. It's just saying with the decay of this and the disappearance of this, we're back at stage one again in this next moment. So actually as you sit here in this room and I think I said this to you again on one evening but I'll just remind you, you are your past, your present and your future right now. All of it together. You know, we tend to think of the future as being something that hasn't yet arrived. No, it's not. It's here, right now. You are actually dealing with your future right now, particularly when you're engaging in meditation, beginning to unhook, beginning to see things a little bit more clearly. You're starting to stop the patterns of repetition, of repeated behaviour, occurring over and over again. Yeah. So I hope that I can. Yeah, Ulrich. What is it about? Yeah, but there's a different word used. There's a different word used to describe that. Um, And the word that's used is not tanha. Tanha always gets a bad press in Buddhist texts. Um, I think I've only ever found one um, reference to it in the Pali Canon where it didn't seem to have quite such a negative connotation. And it's one out of thousands of pages of text within it. In general, when it's talking about the desire to practice meditation, a desire for awakening or enlightenment or anything of that form, then a different word is used which is actually chanda, um, not tanha and chanda can take wholesome forms as well as unwholesome forms so actually in Pali, I didn't give you this in Pali but when we're looking at sense desire, this is kamma chanda so this is unwholesome form of chanda now that desire can actually be used wholesomely, you know, for good things, for you know, the understanding of the Dharma, the coming on retreat, the attempting to overcome some of our pettiness in this world, you know, the desire to be rid of some of my pettiness, that's a good desire, that's a wholesome desire. So actually it's not a complete abandonment of desire, it's actually the cultivation of wholesome desire. Yeah? But it's not tanha. It's not this endless thirst that can't be satisfied. Yeah. That's very, very specific to to um, to the wheel of, of dependent origination here. Yeah, yeah and then uh, okay, first and then second. <laughs> yeah sure uh, Vedana remember I was saying Vedana is something that we can't do anything about it's, it's also one of the khandas, one of the personality aggregates here it's hardwired some of it's conditioned it will change but as I said you know, my kind of feeling about things are immediate if I, you know, let's take a very simple example I think of one I gave previously if I put my hand into a fire because of the way I'm wired unless I'm a masochist I'm going to find that pretty unpleasant. Yeah. What comes after Vedana, though, doesn't have to be a given. In other words, I could react to that by you know, very, very strong aversive cravings. Craving to be rid of the pain. Craving to be rid of, um, you know, even of myself for doing such a stupid thing as putting my hand in the fire. You know, it can take many, many forms, this craving, this aversion here, because this would be aversive craving, not, not the sort of attachment craving here. So what comes after the Vedana is, is open to being corrected, here, whereas the Vedana itself isn't. Yeah, so that's why there's a possibility. This is why I think the Buddha uses craving as being the second uh, noble truth, because actually, really, the big problem is ignorance. But he's saying, really, the way we can get to ignorance is through craving and breaking that link of craving. Now, if we can't do it at the point of craving, and I think most of us find it pretty difficult to do that, then when it comes into the attachment field, we start to look at what's arising in the mind and, in a sense, start to, as I've suggested, unhook, detach ourselves from the stuff that's going through the mind, the cravings that are still there, the narratives, the stories you know, that are always there. So we're starting to unhook ourselves from there. And for most people, I think, and this is the more gentle way, I think for most people that's the more realistic way of working back from attachment through craving to then dislocating ourselves from, of course, the automatic response from Vedana to craving, from Vedana to Tanha. Does that make sense? Um, did I understand you correctly? I was going to say that um, the Buddha um, says that if you hold a grudge against somebody it's and it's my explanation, if you hold a grudge and this person dies, are you gone? No, <laughs> that's not what I said. <laughs> <laughs> no, what I what I was saying is that. There's a kind. There's a very much a realism. It's again the idea that we're trying to extricate ourselves from holding on to that grudge. The word I was using was enmity, which basically means the same sort of thing. From holding on to that grudge. Now, holding on to that grudge, really, from the point of view of the realism that the Buddha is saying, is how can we hold on to that grudge when we know there is death? The person who we are holding the grudge against is going to die. But I too will die. So where's the point in holding that? That's really what he's saying. So we've kind of pulled ourselves out of that attachment. If we really, really, uh, if we really understand that, if we really take it in and comprehend it and um, ingest it properly, then we literally extricate ourselves out from a bit of the Dharma. Because the Dharma is about the way things are, and death is one of the things about the way things are. Sorry? yes that's right compassion can arise as well that's right yes yeah. so that's another piece of the dharma compassion is a powerful force a powerful force about the way human beings can be together so there's a n- number of different ways but just I mean I think there's a stark realism to the way the Buddha puts it don't hold grudges there is death yeah. Why, why waste your life on such a futile thing why waste your life why be tied up often obsessively withholding these sort of resentments these sorts of grudges these sorts of forms of enmity when you know that both parties are going to die <laughs> yeah. I think that it's quite, it pulls you up short I think and one, and then... Just following on from that, I think that somebody performed the retreat here said that people on death to have a very ethical relationship. And when they looked into it, they said basically what they were saying is because they were going to die. And there was a good point in holding them. Yes. Yeah, I can, I can well believe it. I mean, I hadn't heard that before, but I can well believe it. Yeah. You talked about aversive craving. Mm-hmm. Um, so, is, would you say that's also similar if, you, if you've been abused? And, so, you talk about putting your hand in a fire. Mm. I think it would be a wise thing. It would be very much to do with things like forgiveness as well, which is about the invoking of a degree of compassion as well for oneself and for the abuser. Um, I do think it's a wise... Personally, I think it's a wise thing to do um, because whole lives can be destroyed by the festering kind of canker of you know, of abuse settling in the psyche and becoming the thing around which the life is oriented. Here, Yeah? So I do think, yes, it's kind of, you know, dealing with this doesn't mean you have to like the abuser, you don't have to love the abuser, but you can, for example, settle this. You can settle it. No, Vedana isn't just bodily feelings. That's the way we looked at it very specifically. If we'd had more time, we also look at mental Vedana as well. All our thoughts, and I did indicate this a little bit when I said, when you drifted away, look at what the Vedana was that was associated with the thought that arose out there. Mm-hmm. Which doesn't feel unwholesome, which, you know, and you but, you know, um, so then you, you say there is a wholesome desire. You haven't talked about that before, so <laughs> <laughs> are, are we going to, um, sort of you know, we, like you said, we've been looking at our garden and seeing what's in our garden yeah. and taking stock. uh uh-huh. Yes, <laughs> I, have, I have given um, well, study retreats more than anything else where we've looked at all the forms of desire and I hate to say it to you, I've given you only two terms there's about 32 terms which distinguish between different forms of desire within the canon itself because again it's very subtle and very complex you know, the nature of desire that we're dealing with the, you know, some of them are always very unwholesome where others are variable ethically variable it depends on where you place it you know such as a vocation for example to go perhaps to help people to really really have the vocation to help people or to teach people or whatever then that can be a manifestation of wholesome desire if it's not simply self aggrandizement you know that can be a manifestation of healthy desire it doesn't mean there's no payoff for the individual but you know the basic desire is to help not to inflate one's ego here Yeah, so there are many, many different forms of it. And yes, I mean, I do teach, study retreats on this, usually five or six days on this kind of material. So. But it's, you know, it's, in a way, and let me just add something, it's not really the place to examine all of that within a retreat, which can, the practice is foremost in the retreat and the kind of the talks in the evening, the Dharma talks are, you know, to help to support some of that practice. That's a really big topic. (laughs) Yeah? You had said before that the Buddha was the first psycho Psychologist. psychologist. Yes. Yes, absolutely. He would recognise that having a healthy relationship with oneself, i having a healthy relationship with this process that we call self, is very, very important. You know, um, hence the reason why I'll talk about this tomorrow night. But when we look at the Brahma Viharas, most of the Brahma Viharas talk talk initially, or the practices, centre on contemplations about oneself initially developing friendliness towards yourself, developing compassion towards yourself before ever extending it out to somebody else. Yeah. So this is about coming into a healthy relationship. A healthy relationship with yourself is also learning to accept things, you know, learning to accept going through the mind you know, as being, in some sense, is part of this process, not that you have to over-identify with it, it's to see it correctly, to accept where you are. I mean, you notice one of the little prompts I've been giving you, day in, day out for the last seven days. You know, is actually when you first sit, not just to pay just, in, just to pay attention to your posture, to pay attention to your intention, but also to pay attention to what's around for you at the moment. You know, recall this. It's, I've said it virtually every session, just to see what's there. And this is a form of acceptance, not to want to exclude it, bat it away not to want to hold on to anything there, just to go into this process of radical acceptance. Now, in order to progress, I think, on the path, well, there's two ways you could do this. One, I think, which is totally unrealistic and won't actually get you anywhere, but often people do this. They have ideals about themselves and where they want to be, and they kind of try to live that ideal. And there's a lot of repression in that. This is actually the kind of superego in a Freudian sense coming to the forefront again i want to be this you know this is what i want to be and i'm not quite living up to the ideal and so on and so forth whereas actually the way i think that really succeeds is owning up to who you are let's own up to who we are right at this second kind of as they put it in english warts and all yeah you know, everything that's there the good and the bad stuff just let's just own up to it just accept it now we can progress that's where, we can make, that's where we make the movement from we don't make the movement from an idealistic place where we'd like to be we make the movement from where we actually are where we actually are is a mix of the wholesome and the unwholesome and let's just accept that you know? and I think we can actually begin to like ourselves a lot more if we start to do that too just just actually engage in this radical act of acceptance of I'm not perfect you know, that's what the path is about presumably about purification and perfection and all the rest of it we're not let's celebrate it (laughs) let's celebrate our imperfections at the moment let's not make a big misery out of it we've got enough miseries as it is (laughs) let's just kind of own up to it now we can do some work once I start to do this now I can really engage in work I can see what's within my mind I know what the unwholesome is I know what the wholesome is here, I can develop one, and in developing the one, the other releases me. Yeah. It's a, almost as simple as that. Although the work is a lot harder, it's very much easier to say than do the work. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and then, and then right at the back. Sorry. Oh yes, you're bound to have a train of thought afterwards. <laughs> Thoughts always have a prece- always have preceding... Oh yes, they do. Yeah, they always do. Everything, everything is causal within the Buddha's universe. Everything is causal. Nothing arises out of nothing. Yeah, nothing arises as they say in ex nihilo. Everything arises because of a cause and condition. There's always some pre- preceding cause or condition that will give rise to it. Now that preceding cause or condition, um, you know, is the Vedanta. Yeah. That's what's happening. So when the thoughts of craving kick in, you know, craving to avoid or the craving to have, then that's based on that Vedana. That's why the Vedana is so deterministic, if not dealt with, this, this kind of immediacy of, of reaction. Remember what I was saying? That the, you know, we do not just see, and this is why it's because it's happening so fast, we don't see this arising of something, do we? We don't see, actually, usually, we don't go... Oh, unpleasant sensation. I think I'll crave to avoid that. <sighs> or pleasant sensation. I think I'll crave to have some more of that. We don't do that. We just find ourselves in the grip of holding on to something or attempting to hold on to something while going like this, the other stuff, you know, trying to push it away as quickly as possible. That's where we find ourselves because it happens so quickly. It just happens like that. Yeah. So, but there is always a preceding condition. The Buddha's, the Buddha's world, is, the universe for the Buddha is a very causally conditioned thing. It's very, actually, from a modern, even scientific point of view, it's very empirical. Yeah. This is the thing the yeah? Yep, preceding thing is always contact. Yeah. There are much more, again, if we had a lot, much longer time, there are much more complex interreactions between all of the various stages. So if you had them all round in a circle here, you can actually draw lines between them, as well as the way they also interact—not just in the cyclical form, but interacting in other ways as well. But unfortunately, we just haven't got time to go into that. Yeah. Uh, hold on, hold on. <laughs> just one at the back first of all. Um, well, Where is creative thought? It? Creative thought? Yeah. Well, aren't we engaging yeah, in crea- creativity? <laughs> <getting out. laughs> Well, yes, I mean, I mean, this is something actually sometimes that's often, I think, missing in Eastern cultures, is the use of, for example, creative art, often to tell us great truths. You know, that's what um, some fictions do, isn't it? You know, this is why we read great works of fiction, because they actually tell us a lot of truth. I mean, there was a wonderful saying by Pablo Picasso, when he says, you know, art was that form of lie which told the truth. Yeah which I think is a wonderful thing. And I think that's where creativity has. We're trying to tell something about the human condition and often we can do it much, much better um, in a fictionalised form than reading a tome on psychology, actually. You You often get much more of an impression on how... I mean, one of the great influences on kind of the way I think psychologically is Proust. Because there is just so much psychology in Proust's great work. You know, he's working out of all of the kind of complexities and perversions of the human mind there. It's a kind of telling the truth about the way it is. So, so within the assessment of what's going on in our mind, if we're sitting here, we're yeah. in practice, actually, creativity arises. Yes. How, how do you conceptualise that within the framework that we have Within looking at? Within the, framework, within the framework we're dealing with here, I don't think it really sits... In this framework, it depends on what you mean by creative. You know, you could have, for example, a creative relationship to the meditation process. I had a relationship of experimentation, you know, seeing which particular things work, being curious about some things, not being so curious about others, putting the mind here, putting the mind there. There's a lot of creativity in that. You know, there's a lot of creativity actually in the way we live. Make your life a work of art that tells the truth. Yeah. that's what I would say yeah. I mean in terms of though um, we're always creative I'm going to have to draw this to conclusion because it's actually getting quite late um, I mean we're always being creative uh, it's just some of the creations that we make are very unhappy you know, we create stories continuously don't we stories about our lives and we inherit, inhabit those narrative fictions um, but mostly they're fairly sad fictions because, but because we keep telling ourselves... I mean, again, I refer to a, a novel by Jeanette Winterson. I don't know if anybody's read it called The Passion, which is a magic, magical realist novel. So there's lots of, lots of weird things happening in it. But it's so funny, because there's a little refrain that runs through it. Despite all the weird things that are happening and going on in this novel, she keeps going, ''Trust me, I'm telling you stories.'' <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I think that's actually what, in a sense, almost sort of subconsciously, we're doing with our narratives. Trust me, I'm telling you a story. And we buy into our own narratives, and those are very unhappy a lot of the time. So it's kind of living life creatively, not just creating. But it's a complex question. I'm I'm not doing it justice. With more time, I could probably do it more justice. I'm sorry, I think we ought to perhaps draw this to a conclusion. Thank you for listening.